Welcome to Office Talk, a fortnightly podcast featuring in-depth conversations with leading architects about their approach to business, marketing, and communications. I'm your host, Dave Sharp, an architectural marketing expert and director of Office Dave Sharp, a marketing practice offering specialized consultancy, marketing, and PR services tailored to meet the particular needs of architects. Visit officedavesharp.com to learn more or follow the practice on Instagram at officedavesharp. Joining me on the show today is Jemima Ritalik and Mitchell Thompson of Ritalik Thompson, a Sydney-based architecture practice seeking to create timeless and enduring architecture, interiors, and landscapes. In this episode, Jemima Mitchell and I discussed how they made the most of every project opportunity in the early years of their practice, from realizing that briefs and budgets will often expand and change from what clients present during the first meeting, to the benefits of taking on smaller projects as a way to explore ideas, develop relationships, or refine internal processes. We discuss why Jemima and Mitchell believe that percentage-based fees can often create an appearance of conflict of interest that can harm the architect-client relationship, impact the client experience, and also reduce potential future referrals. We talked about the unexpected benefits of marketing towards other architects, from valuable overflow referrals to potential collaborations with larger practices on public projects. Jemima and Mitchell shared what they learned about achieving work-life balance from their experiences working in leading practices earlier in their careers and how they've gone about structuring their practice to maximize both the quality of the work and the time they get to spend with their kids. And finally, we talked about the negative influence that Australia's real estate industry, with its emphasis on resale value, has had on the creative ambitions of residential clients. Jemima and Mitchell shared how they encourage their clients to be brave with their homes and worry less about future owners and more about their own enjoyment. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jemima Ritalik and Mitchell Thompson of Ritalik Thompson. Jemima and Mitchell, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having us. Okay, so should we start off just a little bit of a background on the studio? You guys started the practice in 2016, but yeah, take us back. Walk us through the early days. How did it all start? Well, go right back to the start. Mitchell and I actually met when we were studying because we are life partners as well as business partners. So we both met at the University of New South Wales. And I know, I think even in our university days, or even for some of our final projects, we would work together. So pretty much from the beginning, we've always sort of done work together. Yeah, and it's been a collaboration. Yeah, it's been a collaboration. It's a nice way of putting it. And so then between our degrees, we both headed over to Berlin and we worked in two offices there, Salbrook Hutton and Gruntuk Ernst. And they were both incidentally both those bosses were married partners as well. Um, and it was really interesting because, you know, one actually had no children and were very, you know, had a practice of what, 80, 100 people almost. Uh, yeah. Whereas then my bosses had an office of 30 people and they had five kids and they lived and worked out of this building in in Mitter in the middle of Berlin. And so, yeah, I think actually that was a really pivotal moment where we were like, oh, okay, we can – we can actually structure um, our lives sort of how we want as architects. Um, I think uh, they were quite good examples. Mm, uh, mm. And, you know, it obviously had an impact on us. Yeah. Because I think we've tried to emulate that in... Mode of practice, yeah. Yeah, in, in our practice and in our life and, and family life as well. Yeah. So I think that was probably sort of the first experience that we just say, oh, okay, look, this probably is something we want to gradually work towards. Um, we came back to Sydney Mitchell was at Durback Block Jaggers. I was at uh, with Angelo Candelepis. Um, so we were both working in quite capital A architecture offices, if you will. And I suppose that also has all really dictated the way we work. Yeah, set our palettes and mm. yeah. set our the level to which one should practice. Mm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and definitely. so yeah, it was sort of in the context of then you know working in those sorts of offices and starting to think about having a family that sort of became apparent to us, well, if we want to have a sort of good work-life balance, we probably need to work for ourselves. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Was it pretty hard going at those studios, like without throwing them under the bus, but <laughs> capital A architecture studios can be pretty can be pretty hectic. They were rigorous. You know, yeah. it taught you about rigor. It like, and it taught you that design is sometimes about just exhausting options. And uh, like, I really admire both those offices for that because 
the architecture is really respected in that sense. Like you work through options and when you think you're probably there, you keep going and (laughs) work out that actually maybe you weren't there. It's probably your proper education, Mm. your, the thing that sort of finishes you. Yeah, I think it really shaped us. Shaped us. And just see it actually working in practice as like a real business is important. Yeah. It's also sort of shows you what it takes to do work that is interesting and novel and good. And that's the process that you have to do. Before doing my master's, I went to Tokyo and I I spent like six months at Tezuka Architects Mm. over there. And it was like all physical models and like, 11 p.m. nights and all that sort of stuff (laughs) and what you're talking about with the options really exhausting every option Mm. just totally took me back and gave me some like a horrible flashback to being (laughs) in that office and I I came back and I was like okay I'm not going to be an architect (laughs) after that experience like I loved it but I was like this is hectic I think I'm going to go do marketing it's a lot easier (laughs) yeah I know exactly the kind of the vibe and then but I, I, I agree with you in terms of it gives you getting to see it in practice and be like oh this is this is how it actually happens at that really, really high level. Mm. Oh, this is pretty. This is pretty real, you know, to get to see it. And then whether or not you kind of take all of that forward with you, I guess, is kind of the mm. question. Or do you go like maybe there's a slightly more moderate version of this approach, like a middle ground? But there's no, no middle ground. No, no. not for you guys. You're like, <laughs> that's it. That's the way you do it. Yeah, Look, I love it. I think that's the way to go. I think when you see the work put out by those officers, you see it's a strategy that works. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. it probably is one that we, yeah, follow still to this day. Great. But, yeah, the, the you know, I think what comes with that is you also need to put the time in into those offices. So when you're then looking at, like, yeah, having children, it sort of becomes, well, I don't know, is that something I can do part-time? It's not. You know, it's still a business model of going in at certain times and office hours. So, yeah, um, yeah, we just found ourselves in this time of life where we said, well, how can we actually make it work for us? And so, yeah, so we uh, was pregnant and went on maternity leave. And I think you that's when Mitchell sort of first started with our business. And then once the baby was born, I essentially, yeah, joined in. We didn't really have maternity leave, but, you know, our daughter was very much sort of part of the way we would work and we worked around the reality of having a baby which was sort of working when you could (laughs) yeah yeah it was um we made some mistakes and (laughs) we brought we we did what we had to do yeah maybe brought you know our eldest daughter to a meeting or two that we probably shouldn't have but then we brought her to some meetings and, and it, it went, went very it went well. Really well. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, clients, some clients love babies and <laughs> probably want us work and other clients really didn't appreciate it. And you know what, maybe that's a good sort of sign. Maybe they weren't sort of the right clients for us. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think those early day clients were very much embracing us for the sort of strange package that we were. Yeah. I think and, and again, like I, we had the sort of kudos of working in those really good offices under our belt. So there was a, a degree of trust there, but otherwise we were completely unknown. You know, we didn't really have any output that we could show. We were very much just relying on building a relationship with these people and sort of saying, trust us. Well, <laughs> and actually we had one of our first clients was a referral from Angelo. Yes. And so we actually had him in our corner saying to oh, the client. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, same. And I think the client said to us, I asked him, what do I do as a good client? And he said, well, you just, you trust them and you let them yeah. do what they do. Which, which sort of multiplies the pressure upon you. <laughs> yeah, once you find that out. To, to not only service the client well, but also to... Make Angelo proud. Substantiate mm. your reference. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. can't let him down. Yeah, yeah. because look, a, a, lot of our, a lot of our work is still word of mouth, referral based mm. from... Yeah from our old bosses and you don't want to you feel a very a great responsibility when it's a referral from an old boss for sure yeah yeah Yeah. particularly of someone who you know you respect it's a big responsibility um and you don't want to let them down let the referral let the referrer down or the or the referral so so there was a fire under us i suppose yeah absolutely absolutely you know quite often with practices coming on the podcast where maybe often it probably comes up when they're also teaching as Mm. well as running a you know, their practice, they know that there's this like really uh, this group of peers that are looking at what they're doing and they're extremely (laughs) subconscious of it (laughs) where they're like, these people know their stuff and they're going to be looking at everything we do. And it's Mm. like, we, we have to be really on top of it. (laughs) Um, Mm. I like that pressure. I think it's kind of healthy, right? Rather than just going, 
Instagram is my accountability or whatever, yeah, you know, yeah. to, to kind of know that there's somebody there. But in terms of what you guys picked up in Berlin, because that was quite interesting, how do you run a 30-person studio with five kids? That yeah. is a great mystery. What, what does that involve? And you guys have sort of taken that structure forward or, or that approach and sort of blended it with your Angelo studio and mm. Durbock, I can't, I can't say it. Durbock, <laughs> Block, Durbock, Jaggers. Block, Jaggers. It's too much. It's like, tongue, bit DBJ, of a tongue twister. DBJ, DBJ, DBJ. <laughs> You've sort of like blended those experiences together. What, what did, what did that involve? How do you take that sort of rigorous, thorough model and blend it into also a rigorous and thorough Berlin model, but mm. to also have that sort of lifestyle? Well, I think, because I think we'd probably emulate Gruntuk Ernst more than Sabra Cutten. I mean, Sabra Cutten, we're literally flying to Harvard every other week. Like that was <laughs> yeah. a pretty, it was almost Whoa. like watching it and saying, mm, maybe I don't want to do that. The international travel is a crazy aspect of those yeah, like star architect sort of studios, isn't exactly, it? Exactly, exactly. Like they're and, just gone for a month or two yeah. and then. And you could see their life was about that. It wasn't about something else. Whereas I think actually what was really amazing about Gruntuk Ernst was the way they did it was they basically built a space to do it. So they built, they had a two-story office and on top of that they had uh, basically their apartment. It was a Berlin sort of courtyard arrangement. So over the Hof they actually had another little dwelling where I think her parents would come and stay. So, you know, the only way you have five kids and have a business is you have help with the kids, right? So they had family, they had au pairs and nannies and it was like it's the juggle but they embraced the juggle and they set up for it, you know, the fact that their kids are upstairs like yeah, there's times where they, like we'd be working away and they'd disappear for dinner and then they'd come back down. So, yeah, I think we saw that actually it was about structuring, like removing the travel. So it is a sort of work, it was, you know, before COVID, a sort of work from home model that was mm. properly set up for that. And, yeah, that's essentially what our studio is now. You know, we're working out of this um, studio space in the base of our house. The house is still quite separate on the levels above, but it's sort of the necessity of just being able to wrangle family. And I mean, you know, we often give, we have to give a little caveat to potential employees about like, yeah, you're going to come into work and the kids are going to be eating their wheat bix or, you know, if they're yeah. sick, they're there up on the couch. Yeah, it's not a traditional workplace. No. Um, it's very personal. But um, it's, it's to allow flexibility. And then we like to at least pass that benefit on to, you know, yeah. employees that we have. Yeah, so it five o'clock, you're at the nice. door, basically. Yeah, five o'clock, you got to get out because the kids yeah. are hungry. <laughs> I don't want you here. <laughs> That's a good, like, good sort of limitation. So I guess, like, coming back to where the studio was at, lots of sort of referral word of mouth from your previous employers. Did, and did that mostly, being in the kind of the area that you guys are at, was that sort of leaning mostly into sort of renovations, extensions, like that predominantly residential type work. And mm. like, yeah, is that, is that kind of the makeup of that sort of stuff? Like residential projects that sort of didn't make sense for those bigger studios. And that's why it was kind of like they trusted, entrusted you and sort of sent that work your way. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Look, so, some of them were as small as people needing storage, like, you know, a, yeah. a bookshelf. A bookshelf, yeah. I think uh, um, the Erskineville creature started as a bookshelf. Yeah, yeah. The, the Erskine, yeah, <laughs> our, one of our first sort of that's so projects cool. yeah. was, yeah, a, a bookshelf. God, it went a long way from a bookshelf. Well, I've just got to open on we, your website right now. <laughs> exactly, and that's what we learned quite early on is, and even it still happens to us now, people come to you and they say, oh, it's just a bathroom. And then once actually like two hours into the conversation, you realise, well, it's not a bathroom, it's a extension and it's a rejig of, you know, the layout to get it. So it, it actually never is that small thing that people seem to initially indicate mm. um, in our experience, which is sort of why we're actually quite open when people come to us because, yeah, in our experience, briefs really broaden. But, yeah, certainly that initial work was very much about, yeah, it was sort of pass it forward, uh, you know, it's it's not quite grand enough for us, but I trust that you guys will look after these people and these people matter to me. Yeah, and actually we got some wonderful clients because of that. Like, you know, people, even people who actually have worked with other really well-known architects, but, you know, they have smaller things that they just sort of want to do simply. And, you know, we've actually got quite a few repeat clients like that now where you might do little things for them here and there and then actually that uh, graduates into larger projects down the line. I mean, the fact that these clients approached well, they went to Archit- good people in the first place. <laughs> architects of this yeah. caliber yeah. for for something like a, a, a bookshelf sort of speaks to their aspiration. Mm. And so that you're already starting in a good place with that because 
they want architecture, mm. which is a really great starting point for an architect. <laughs> mm. Sometimes people just want a room or or a uh, process, a or, DA done. <laughs> yeah, or, uh, they were sort of great people to begin with, and in that sort of sense, it didn't really matter too much on how big, what or it was, yeah. small, or the the scope of works or the budget was. You just knew that there was someone who wanted something nice and beautiful. And so that was, okay, let's do that. Mm. And I guess we've kind of chased that thereafter. People who want to make nice things, it's a good start. That's like an amazing way to get clients is kind of coming through great architects, that that pre-filter. So I guess like one of the challenges when a lot of your work is coming from referral from like a really important relationship is that sometimes it can be hard to can be hard to say no. You feel that sort of sense of pressure of like, I bet I, I kind of need, I have to take this client on or I have to like make my relationship with that person happy, that sort of thing. But a theme that kind of gets raised quite often is it's important to, you know, get to that stage where you start kind of being more selective about the projects that you take on. But on the flip side, I'm always interested in studios that have the approach of going, actually, we try, we kind of just, we do take on everything, but we see how every project can turn into something great. And we're not afraid of taking on something that doesn't seem fantastic at the outset. So I guess like, where do you guys kind of sit with that? Well, yeah, I think that that point you make about finding something in every project, no matter what, is something that we've always chased. There's got to be something in it for you as well. You know, you satisfy the client's requirements but also there has to be architecture there has to be an idea there has to be something in it for you to explore and I think we've always tried to find that in every project or we've always tried to sort of um, instill that sort of an idea or something into a project and so when someone knocks on our door and says do you want to do something we're always up for the challenge I guess of trying to of trying to do that of trying to find something in there for us there's always an opportunity and it's kind of hard to say no sometimes even though maybe everything tells you that you shouldn't be. Maybe that's the sort of inner architectural uh, ego, you know, that you that you can find something in there. But I mean, like you obviously have. You've got examples of projects where face value wasn't presenting as a very big project or opportunity or budget or brief or whatever, and it's ended up being like this sick thing in your portfolio <laughs> that's like out in the media and, you know. I think it was because of that, because that we had that experience quite with one of our first clients of like, yeah, I want a bookshelf. And it ended up being this whole thing. I think like very early on, we realized like, oh, okay, don't take it at face value. And so, yeah, I think it was like five years before we said no. So we did just say yes to everything. Mm. And yeah, there was always, there was always some reason generally that made it okay. And you got to the point where if it really seemed off, you would then actually solve that problem by putting a pretty high fee to it. And so then, mm. you know, we'd say at least at the end of the day, <laughs> we're getting paid really well for, to do that. And then, you know, that was that was important to, to make sure because so much, it, uh, I once, I, it was Anita Panov, I'll credit her with it. She once said to me, um, like, you just have to be patient. And like, it's really hard to hear that when you're like a, you know, 20 something and like you're wanting to have projects like your peers and you're wanting to be published and yeah yeah you have to be patient and so that might mean that yeah you have to do other jobs that aren't about getting photos and portfolio but actually what do you get out of those other things you've said yes to you get experience in in working you know with builders or you get experience with working through a process and dealing with clients um so yeah once I think it took me a few years to get to the part where I realized I had to be patient and then it was after we were patient that actually, it, yeah, we seemed to suddenly get into this position of, oh, okay, we can start to dictate the work type more. We can say no. Yeah, I think like but there's got to be something in it for you, you know. It's got to be some sort of architect, something to explore. Otherwise, it's kind of not that interesting and then it needs just, yeah, for profit, I suppose. I guess the people that kind of advocate for being really like, you know, saying no to all the wrong opportunities and everything, I guess a couple of things that kind of get raised is that, well, if you take on this less than ideal situation and then you work with that client and it doesn't have a, I guess, like marketable outcome or publishable outcome, you're going to get like referral and word of mouth to their like mates and cousins and stuff. And they're going to have similarly sort of dodgy mm. projects. And then you get stuck in this cycle of like, we're just working with clients that are uh, kind of like not not the right, I guess, like fit. Mm. I, but I don't know. I think that's catastrophizing the situation a little bit. It, it well, really yeah. isn't that bad, right? I mean, when <laughs> I think about it, like if I think about those people who maybe 
you know, the outcome we weren't that interested in. I didn't actually think we ever got a referral <laughs> out of them. Like I think maybe that that was picked up that like, oh, you're kind of, you guys are interested in other things. And actually one of those clients recently came back to us and we did just say, yeah, sorry, we don't, it's not for us. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So I, I just think though it was, we didn't, I didn't feel like we had, we didn't really have the option to turn things away. Like but those early years, like, yeah, we, you know, we had a, a kid, we had our two wages to cover. I think, you know, you did some teaching as well, mm. but, um, it was a pandemic. Yeah. By the pandemic, it was sort of okay, weirdly, mm. but yeah, I don't know. It, it was like, it wasn't really a choice for us. I, I played, I, I've watched colleagues and I've, I've thought about that same sort of dilemma, but I, I think actually we're quite good at the service part of our job as well. So when we've when it, when the role has really been one more of service, we've actually kind of fulfilled it quite well, and then so it's at least like hasn't been a stressful undertaking. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and it's actually kind of it kind of gave us experience, so that then when those really good jobs did come along, like we can actually say like well, we kind of know what we're talking about with this, and we can advise you and. So, yeah, it, it still had that thing. Like, we still got something out of it. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. Just like even refining your, yeah, refining your service and yeah. your skills in that area. That's a good thing because then you do feel a lot more confident when that cool opportunity comes up that you're not going to, like, fumble it. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, and like, I really feel like yeah. after a few years in, like, I really felt like we didn't know much at the beginning. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's that case of, like, not sort of knowing how little you know until you <laughs> know more. Yeah. Um, you guys touch on um, there often being kind of more to a client's budget than it seems at first. And I think that's sort of an interesting kind of area because it's like a really common problem or thing that we find out often that clients actually have way deeper pockets than they said they did. <laughs> and mm. we felt like if their brief and their budget like didn't line up, you're like, well, I'm going to make my fees based on what I actually think this will really mm. take. Uh, mm. And then at least we're like not stuck in a situation where we're working like our guts out on a project that's gonna go like all out of proportion i just wonder what that deal is with can we get inside the psychology of like clients and their their stated budgets versus their real budgets yeah <laughs> i don't think it's so much the budget i think it's, it's the, the brief. brief that's what we've brief. found oh, yeah okay. yeah we we treat um, it as and because again one of an early experience was a complete misalignment of budget and brief and so we quite quickly found that this was pretty much common amongst most clients. So we very quickly divorced our fees from budget for that reason. Like very early on, we were very explicit in our contract. Our fee has nothing to do with your budget because people didn't know. People didn't know what building costs were. And we really made it quite clear that part of the process of working with us was about aligning those two things. And we'd, our spiel to a new client would always start with this sort of you know, your budget's up here and your brief is down over here somewhere and, like, you've got to bring the two to the happy place that you want them to be in. So it wasn't necessarily about them, like, necessarily having deeper pockets or not. It was actually more about what is it you want to build will allow you to understand how much that's going to cost and then you can make that decision. And It I was deciphering the client's yeah. um, requirements. But also making them understand that, like, the budget wasn't something that was beneficial to us. I think that was the big thing. And I mean, we've had this um, conversation a lot with colleagues about, you know, percentage fees versus I'm lump like sum. chomping at the bit to yeah. get into this topic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm sitting here like on the edge of my seat like. There'll be a lot of, a lot of people who like disagree with. A lot with of people tell us we're crazy that we don't do percentage fees. A lot of people tell me I'm crazy for telling clients that they should be starting to think more about fixed fees. Yeah. We've just found it allows us to be there's less blame you know there's less sort of sense of like oh it's in your interest to bring up the budget or and I suppose to a lot of our clients the budget actually was the budget like now and then you'd get people who were sort of like pulling the you know sort of saying oh I'm not going to admit to you what my budget is because that's going to dictate your fees and so that's why we got really bored of that conversation yeah and so we said like a lot of our early days, we were really respectful of people's budget. 
And I think, mm. yeah, Mitchell <laughs> described as being maybe too respectful at times. Um, well, we still are. We still are very much, but it was respectful to the sense of they would tell us a certain thing, we would design the response in a certain way, and then as it got on site and unfolded, you know, they'd sort of add in, add in, add in. And so the end point that you got to, we would then sort of say, well, if you told us that at the beginning, maybe we wouldn't have done it that way. You know, maybe we would have done it differently and you could have got the same or maybe even a better outcome. So that's where the the frustration factor on that comes in. Yeah, when there's a potential for the threshold of the project to shift. Mm. And if we'd known, if we'd had a few more parameters at the start, then you could have anticipated that and maybe gotten to where you are in a quicker versus sort of, you know, Dancing slowly, around slowly, the question. <laughs> it's more slowly, like over a long time, in, you know, increasing, increasing things until you suddenly look back and you're like, we've come quite a long way from where we started and mm. I think we could have just gotten here a lot quicker. But I think as well that's where we were saying the other day that it was about that's that experience that, you know, now we're seven years in practice, we can actually start to see that a bit earlier in people and start to sort of draw it out earlier. Yep. I mean, we got to a point where we used to essentially just do two schemes and say, look, here's your scheme where this is what it costs that like you were saying, you want to spend this amount. Here's what you can do. And here's the scheme that's actually like responsible in terms of what the your, building should do and what's an, eff- yeah, an efficient yeah. way of building. So we'd often yeah. do that sort of two scheme approach because it was actually kind of quick for us to do on paper and could potentially lead to a better project. So it also, and then you can, you know, apply your square meter rates or or whatever to sort of estimate what the costs are. It kind of empowers the client a little bit because they can make value decisions then, Mm. you know, they Mm. can um, see a, a layout and a price next to it. And they can sort of, yeah, they can go home and chat with their partner about what is and isn't important Mm. quite, quite quickly without too much Mm. invested. I think too, in some of our projects, like you and I will be sort of more like willing to go with their lower budget in a lot of moments. And it, it usually is the client side that causes the change. So, you know, if they'll say, oh, I only want to spend a million dollars and we'll be like, okay, well, this is what you can do. Yeah, and we're then happy now, to do quite raw finishes. Yeah, like we'll say, well, make it small. Don't have a car park. Do this, you know. And then right. they go, oh, well, but no, but I need the second bed uh-huh. and I need the, the ensuite I and I need... So yeah, like that's, I don't really care about that stuff. That's, that's you and what you want. So I'm happy to design for what you, you want. You get but paid I, the same. That's well, right. <laughs> but also, you know, we can make one space do multiple things. You don't need to have mm. discrete um, rooms for, for each task. Like there's kind of um, opportunity, you know, going back to that opportunity idea in, in, a, in a lower budget and stripping back and being more direct in, in what you're able to to build yeah and then it's like an extra 100 grand for like furniture and landscape and art Mm. so like (laughs) you know just really quickly in a nutshell because i want to go back to like the kind of the the controversy around fixed fees versus percentage fees Mm. just really really briefly could you just really quickly describe like in a nutshell how you kind of structure or approach your fees and then also how you deal with the risk of that's like often raised with me in terms of like, well, what happens when the client wants all these extra things and now the budget's like twice as much and twice as complicated and blah, blah, blah. Like, is that a big risk in terms of the fees? And so, yeah, just like run me through that real quick. We found really quickly the risk could be removed by tying the fee to the brief because the changes that come are in the brief. So we would write you know, sort of summation, our contract has a summation of what we understand the brief to be. We have four stages. We fix the fee for the first three being sketch, the, you know, approval process and then the construction documents. And then we found actually... Not all parts of the approval process. Yeah, with caveats about, you know, modifications or going to court, that sort of thing. Um, so basically we, we the way we put it to our clients is we try to fix all the knowns. So everything we can account for and we can preempt, we're happy to give a fixed fee onto that. And actually our clients really like that that brings them certainty. We found the biggest area of variable was that on-site component. and Particularly alterations and additions? Uh, yeah, just because of the nature of them. You know, you, you, you just don't know what you can. And, and they say, even now, clients will say, oh, can you give me like an estimate? I say, like, I really actually can't because I don't know how much you're going to change. I don't know what we're going to find. <laughs> like I can give you a pretty big range, but. And also, you know, there can be 
12 months, 24 months from, yeah. from when you first signed up to when you get on site. When that happens. And, you know, people get inheritances, people get divorced, people get all sorts of things mm. in that time. Mm. And, and So, um, yeah, we just do that at hourly rates and know, we've actually found that's the best way to deal with it. I think that's the, the most transparent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's also when you're on site, that's when the rubber hits the road, that's when things are probably most stressful for a client and I think that they appreciate the transparency mm. of, of our fee during that time. If you want us there, we'll be there. If you want changes, hey, that's fine, but you're you making the them. changes. Yeah. There's a direct correlation, I suppose, between the fee and, and our work. Mm. Yeah. Do you feel like the percentage crew have any like winning arguments? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I like the sound of it <laughs> in theory, like... <laughs> Because, yeah, like, uh, yeah, budgets do seem to go like 50% over, 80% over even. But I don't feel hard done by it ever really because at the time when I did that sketch design, I was happy with what that fee was to do that. And, yeah, the the time for us, look, we still probably our least profitable time is still that construction documentation stage. Mm. And that is a little bit of us because we like to really, (laughs) you know, document things a certain way. And actually I I don't begrudge not, you know, I have, look, it's not all the time. I do have some projects where I think, oh gosh, we didn't allow for that properly. We're still Mm. learning. But we're still learning, that's right. fine-tuning it. Yeah. That's cool. But, yeah, I just, I find actually that we recoup losses during site because, yeah, the, it is quite a big component. I mean, it's often the fee at the end of the day is usually quite similar to that construction documentation fee um, once we look at it. So we, we still keep those percentages in mind when we're putting those lump sums together as a guide of, you know, generally this is what the market is saying. Yeah. But, yeah, we're we're tying it back to, okay, how many hours did we spend? Like, like it really, at the end of the day, it's about time for us, our fee. So how many hours did that take? How much did time did we lose on that other project that was similar? Yeah, it's obviously getting easier as we have more projects. We sort of learn like, okay, DA in that council is going to require this. DA in that, you know. I think like, you know, just going back to your question about the the pro percentage fees argument, I think that relies on like a very trusting relationship with um, client and yourself because they're effectively having to tell you what the build cost is so that you can adjust your fee. Um, for that stage or for previous stages, even, you know, retroactively, sometimes people aren't that nice by the end, or sometimes there's, you know, intense pressures on them. Which is usually a very stressful point by the time the tender has come in and you're already over budget anyway. And then frankly, I don't really want to be sending them an invoice to say, oh, and by the way, you owe me all this. I I, I would prefer to (laughs) sort of, I'd prefer to have a, a, a great relationship and to get, it's sort of an to, act to get something built that's really beautiful so that you can then use that for the next project. I think I mean, as well, it's like this moment of generosity that you can kind of, it's like almost, it's ours to give. We're comfortable. Yeah. Like, comfortable oh, okay, with, look how with, much more expensive your project is, but it's fine. Like we're all going to benefit. It, it's okay. Yeah, yeah. It's, I'm not the one there asking for more money. I, I don't yeah. really want to be that yeah. person. I mean, our interest is still in the project at this state, mm. you know, like, I mean, I, I'm hoping it always will be that, but we're always looking for the next job. You know, we're still an emerging office. We still need new work and new clients. And so it's detrimental to maybe make an extra few thousand dollars because of the percentage fee, but to have a, um, a, a terrible relationship and to lose a referral. So the project is important to us. And, yeah. if in, and at this point in our careers, we're comfortable with, with the fee structure because we think it maintains... Um, you know, a, a transparent collegiate <laughs> sense yeah. on the um, during during the build, and it benefits us in the end ultimately. There's probably some business coach out there like pulling their hair out or something <laughs> listening to this. But, oh, absolutely, but, but, but sure. I don't know. Actually, I don't know if they're actually pro <laughs> this. I think they might be because I feel like um, a like a, a, a sort of a percentage based overall thing is like a very simplistic tool. Uh, it's like just a, just a hammer, and I think what studios are doing is they're starting to look at these kind of hybrids of fixed yeah. and hourly and like yeah. feasibility or concept being some sort of like fixed lumps. Like there's this, it's yeah. this sort of like combination of different things because each stage has different levels of risk and time involved and uncertainty and everything. So yeah, like I think that's a really sensible way to do it. The reason I get so excited about it is because when I start each, um, 
like marketing strategy process with um, a practice, I always do like market research, whether that's interviewing their clients or we'll do some, do some surveying, some like quantitative stuff or whatever to sort of work out like what, like their target clients kind of attitudes about mm-hmm. different aspects of their, their service or their offering or architects broadly. And over the last like year or so, the most highest ranking attitude has been like percentage-based fees in this environment feel like suspiciously unfair. And I don't like that the architect and my incentives are like not aligned. And I, I just feel like it's a really like not transparent, not fair way for them to charge fees. And there, and clients' perception is that like the cost of things is going up. I don't think it's fair that an architect should like benefit from that and for not doing any more work. And like there's, there's may not be, um, but there's a really probably good, great argument against those like beliefs and attitudes. Like that might be a very uninformed stance, but it's like quite crazy to me that such a high percentage of clients are expressing that point of view right now, like in the residential space and like not just in Australia, in the UK, like other places I'm looking at this and it's just, um, yeah, it's got me thinking about it a lot, but when I have a discussion about it with clients, I always get like so much pushback that I'm like, I'm just not going to bother. <laughs> I think- like, I'll tell I'll put the info out there. It's like, do what you want with it. <laughs> look, yeah. I mean, look, we always tell our clients, um, you know, speaking to like a sort of an earlier point, we are happy to design to a, to a reduced budget. Um, I think that part of the problem right now is that the real estate agents drive a lot of architecture at the moment. They, well, they, they drive the metrics, yeah. They drive the metrics and it's kind of horrible because it's people being told that they have to have a certain configuration, a certain number, you know, bedrooms, bathrooms, car spaces, postcode to, for, for their home to be successful or to be profitable, mm. you know, to be, to be worth worthwhile. And so I think that you can design in, in, a, in, a, in a cost-effective way People need to sort of, you know, tell in the politest way possible the real estate agents to go away and to just not follow that. But, you know, it's the market, I suppose. It takes someone kind of brave to to not follow that. People are sort of terrified about resale value. Mm. You know, Even like, people who tell you it's their forever home will still oh, at the end of the day then finally drop in that word, you know, oh, but the uh, resale. And, and I'm like, well, what, what are you doing? You've just bought this home and you've, and this, this was someone's forever home. You know? Yeah, yeah. And the first thing that you do They're going to rip you out your is, kitchen, is, don't worry. Renovate and <laughs> guess what, you know, person who comes and buys this after you, they're probably going to renovate as well. Like, um, mm. yeah, yeah. That's very true. Like the forever home thing, like I think people – it would be great if people were a little bit more free with um, freed from the uh, fear of resale and that they could they could sort of I think that's the inherent problem though of I mean particularly in Sydney like it's it's sort of houses are actually worth too much yeah um, they're worth too much and so they're not a place where people are going to take risks or only mm. certain people are so yeah. It's, yeah. it's not no, really an experimental ground. <laughs> yeah, no one wants to chop like half a million dollars off their house value with one like kitchen cabinet yeah, colour. Yeah, it's hard know? to convince. <laughs> I mean, I really enjoy trying to win that argument and <laughs> now and then you do, but it's a hard sell. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's interesting. God, where do we go from there? I love that <laughs> conversation. So I guess like talking about the kind of alts and ads and I mean that seems to be something that you guys are like really kind of niched into in a way because I guess like as a byproduct of kind of where your office is and Mm. where your sort of networks are interested in discussing like how much of that is kind of intentional versus unintentional and also like where you sort of feel like things will head over time is it about changing to sort of different types of work or is it about going like you know the stuff we're doing right now is awesome and we love it we love this area and we're kind of happy to sort of continue doing this sort of stuff. Yeah, look, it's, I mean, we practice a lot in the inner east, eastern suburbs of Sydney, um, you know, Surrey Hills, Paddington. Um, sure. And, you know, in a, even inner west. And so a, a lot of the housing stock and a lot of the areas are heritage or heritage conservation. And so, yeah, because of that, it has meant most of our work has been alterations and additions. I mean, yeah, we would love to have more new builds and new houses because, frankly, it's easier and 
it is the work that interests us because you, you know, you don't necessarily have to be trying to retain bits that maybe don't work or have that fight about it. But at deal with someone else's problems. Decisions. <laughs> oh, yeah. But at the same time, like I don't know, we're also quite good at that. We're quite good at using and sort of reacting to things that are already there. And it's certainly it certainly is our bread and butter and it's certainly something that it's still always interesting to us. And I think we're probably interested as we um, get more of a portfolio is actually trying to agitate a little bit more in that area as well. You know, there's a little bit of a groundswell in Sydney about how do we deal with heritage particularly. Um, You know, we're in this interesting moment of sustainability becoming pretty important for our houses, um, but also ideas of connection with country and, frankly, the heritage overlays that are put onto our... The agendas. Yeah, the agendas are not conducive to creating homes that are necessarily appropriate for Australia, (laughs) are necessarily appropriate for the future, for electrification. More respectful of country. Yeah, so I... yeah, Our history, history, yeah. It's certainly... We really like the challenges that come with it um, and we think there's a lot of work that still needs to be done with it because, frankly, there's whole swathes of, particularly in a West Council, that will just be little Victorian crumbling cities. (laughs) And I think, you know, none of these buildings were ever particularly built well either. So it is a sort of... I enjoy this sort of unraveling of these structures in, you know, actually trying to make them do what they should be doing as a as a home. But, yeah, it certainly has just probably because of the nature of where we work and maybe also the budgets of clients, you know, sometimes it necessitates, you know, oh, we do need to keep things. It needs to be an alteration rather than a new build. I think, yeah, the alterations and additions are always going to be something that we have a concern in because... Yeah, like like these are our, these are the places that we dwell where where we were born and where we live, and we just we're interested in improving them and making them better. Mm. Um, I think we have a few some new houses which are great because that's when you can sort of really drive uh, the direction, like flex your architectural ego and <laughs> you know explore an idea like in its in its sort of completeness. And then also you know small public work we done a few things with um uh with councils and been sort of lucky to partner with sort of larger offices on on things um there's mm. an interest in that as well uh, you know dwelling in the city i mean yeah the, the projects that are, are mainly concerned with the urban environment with the city i think i think fundamentally all of our projects are still about problem solving you know like we are interested in solving a problem we're not really interested in just making something that looks like the image you found on Pinterest. Like it, yeah, our projects, most of our clients have real problems, you know, like, hey, my family can't fit in this house or, you know, why is is this house so dark? (laughs) So the projects are all about problem solving. And even when it's a, yeah, when it it has been um, the new build opportunities, it's like the house was severely dilapidated. So I think like there's a level of sustainable sort of responsibility where actually altering houses is probably the appropriate way forward in terms of a lot of our built environment, unless there's an opportunity for like increasing density or, you know. Um, But I think even like as we dipped our toes into sort of multi-res and, you know, even the public works, I think fundamentally we always find ourselves realising actually what we like to do is deal with the direct client and the direct individual whose house it is. Yeah, the personality. Yeah, like that's actually the, the dealing with the people is actually part of it we really enjoy. And like particularly with our like repeat clients, like we have real relationships with those people. You know, we go out to dinner with them, like they're friends, they become friends. And you don't get that with some of these, you know, more stakeholder type jobs. So mm-hmm. I think we like that sort of directness and honesty that you get with those sorts of projects. It yeah. makes it enjoyable, you know. We get to deal with this, the cast of characters. <laughs> yeah, it makes them individual. Um, and every project becomes individual because of that. Like for, I think it, it has been a sort of that idea of like what the, what is a Retallic Thompson building, you know, what does it look like is maybe a bit more of a 
slow emergence, particularly when you are doing alterations additions. It's maybe not a flashy thing to try to get attention with. Um, and because we do like that each of our projects actually is quite different because there has been a different client. So yeah, it sort of can be frustrating in that sense of like, oh, okay, it's not that glitzy, it's not going to win awards, but mm. actually we made that person really happy and we solved their problem. It's one of the, I guess, putting my kind of marketing hat on a little bit. Listeners will probably hate this lens <laughs> to look through this thing, but there's, I guess, like certain categories of the work of, of architecture where it's easier to produce distinctive, interesting like I'm just primarily talking visually, like visually mm. distinctive work is easier in some categories. Like I'll just think the most quintessential examples I think of are like side return extensions in London that like a lot of my clients work in that <laughs> yeah. space where like thousands of absolutely identical terraces <laughs> with the identical layout the, and it's the like brick thing on the and back. And then there's this like crazy planning <laughs> thing over the top and there's all these layers where ultimately you can move this thing a centimeter to the left or a centimeter to the right and that's mm. like your architectural freedom mm. versus like sick new build house up on a cliff overlooking the ocean where you get yeah. this like complete, <laughs> yeah. you know, where, where it's like it lends itself towards extremely easy marketing there's a lot more competition and a lot more crowdedness in that sort of tighter inner city thing. Yeah, I think we've we've totally noticed that. And I, the main time actually we feel we notice it is when you get to awards. Yeah, exactly. Where there's so many in that yeah. category. Yeah. Damn, there's a lot of good projects in here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it's hard to, to get noticed in that way. I mean, to the point where we've stopped entering <laughs> terraces <laughs> into awards. Um but anyway, I was told the other day we should persevere. <laughs> <laughs> persevere with the terraces. Yeah. Well, Mitchell and I, are, we always say we're a highly commended office. We've never actually won an award, <laughs> we, but we've won a lot of commendations. Yeah, it's hard. It's the competitiveness in that space that I think sometimes drives people or motivates them to, you know, seek out those slightly more uh, liberating kind of categories purely because architecturally it's sometimes offers something different, but... I think also subconsciously maybe there's also that sense of, oh, maybe we get to sort of stamp our mark a little bit more in terms of like what our work looks like and our style and there's a bit more, it creates a bit more separation between us and yeah. sort of like other practices. But I'm being like a very marketing guy right now. I'll, I'll shut up. <laughs> I, I, I know what you're saying, but I think there's still a lot of people who have those opportunities uh, of a pavine in the bush, you know, a sort of a house on top of the hill who who – who they fumble just them. cook it. Yeah, they do mm. like something yeah. really rubbish. And, and, <laughs> you know, it hurts like, so much to see yeah. that. <laughs> like not to sort of get too much into sort of design philosophy, but like there's an infinite amount of options mm. in any situation, you know, and you have to sort of really believe that otherwise you just, you know, copy paste and template things, every, you know, for your projects. Mm. I think like that was something I was taught very early in, not in architecture school, in like, when I was doing another design course, there's always an infinite amount of options. And so if it's just a relaying secondary dwelling, you know, with one elevation to the street and you've got 50 mils of, you know, depth to articulate your facade, there's still a huge number of ways that you can achieve a novel, interesting, standout piece of architecture. Even if it's a tiny corner of a garden, you can still, you can still do that. You can be given, you know, all the money in the world and like a football field and you can still make an ugly garden. Like it doesn't, the scale or the, the location, it doesn't matter. You know, as we've discussed previously, it's very hard to get a new build or a new house when all you're putting up is apartment renovations or, mm. or terrace renovations. Like, you know. Um, yeah, the market's very literal in what you yeah, get back. <laughs> yeah. I, you don't get new beach houses uh, from doing uh, Alton Ads terraces in Darlinghurst, put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Although, we almost did once, but um, <laughs> but there's always like an architectural opportunity in in anything, and yeah, I, I don't know if like that big show off sort of moment necessarily is is necessarily uh, a guarantee that it will be more important. I suppose is what I'm trying to say. There are also other ways in terms of how a project is presented to create visual distinctiveness as well. Like that's I guess why we concentrate so much on photography and. Hmm. styling and landscape and all sorts of things like that stuff also can accentuate I guess like that difference in that mm. project mm. and contribute towards like the realization that there is something new in this project because I think maybe it's sometimes that 
the difference between those projects is just more subtle and less obvious. Maybe that's really the challenge is like there is there is more nuance in terms of what makes this project different. It's not mm-hmm. like it has this like huge form dramatic thing that's different. It's mm-hmm. like more subtle, might just be a bit more materiality or whatever. Now it becomes much more challenging to kind of like convey that to people who can't yeah. visit it, you know, yeah, like yeah. that's why photography becomes like so important um and and something that you guys have been really successful with i always feel like every episode ends up with a conversation about photography so maybe we don't do it but i'm <laughs> been obsessed big part of Thanks, my job ben. so yeah so so we'll, we'll give it we'll give it a couple of minutes just to acknowledge <laughs> the good work that that ben's been doing so have you guys used mr hosking for everything we worked with ben quite a lot but also we've started because of proximity and availability. Mm. Now Ben has a baby. We've also been working with Hamish McIntosh a little bit okay. who has a similar visual style. But, yeah, I definitely, I I think our we were quite deliberate in the choice of photographer. I, I can't remember what I saw of Ben's that first alerted me to him. He did some beautiful, like, Lovell Burton. I think that's yeah. what it was, wasn't it? Projects. Yeah, I think we saw that and just thought, yeah, that's it. I, I think, yeah, our work kind of touching on what you were saying before, our work can be subtle, Mm. which is where we're challenged sometimes in then trying to get people to be excited by it Yeah, um, because we are interested in just, yeah, removing those flashy moments. And, I mean, we we also, the other word we give it is timelessness. Like, yeah, yeah, we don't really want things to be fashionable. exactly. We just want them to transcend into something else. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I kind of like maybe there is a bit more of a long game in that, which I'm okay with. And I think that sort of plays part and parcel with what our office is, which is that it's that personal relationship side. So it doesn't really matter if it's not all flashy and glitzy. It gets, it's doing what it needs to do for the client. And so then we're getting referrals and jobs that way. And then actually we're getting quite a, a niche group of people whose work we really like. I think actually, yeah, most of the feedback we get from Ben's photos is probably respect from other architects, which in turn actually, you know, I love. Is like, really core to your strategy. And yeah. quite often this idea of like marketing for other architects gets dismissed as like not a, not a solid business strategy. But mm-hmm. I think it's for some practices is the most sensible positioning strategy. And it's yeah. like you can build a really sick studio off the back of respect from that audience. and. Yeah like you mentioned it earlier with your public projects through these like partnerships and collaborations, like that wouldn't happen if you weren't building your sort of like reputation in the industry. Yeah. So no, that's massive. Yeah. But I like what you're saying about timelessness, like the long, the long game, right? Mm. Cause it's like long relationships, but also like, yeah, you want these projects to be like standing up in 10 years and be like, they represent us, you know? That's and, right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's where maybe as well, that sort of, coming from that alteration edition background in having to deal with this sort of dilapidated Victorian housing stock of Sydney is like we want houses that are actually about us. We want them to be about us as Australians. And, you know, I really do feel like Merkit was sort of probably the last, you know, one truly interested in these sort of questions of regionalism. I mean, Stutchbury probably arguably in terms of New South Wales architects. Mm-hmm have been successful in sort of putting forward this notion of something that, you know, it's this phenomena of Instagram, like we've become this sort of global melting pot in terms of particularly, I think so much of alterations and additions can become about interiors. And so then interiors, I just, I think we've lost a sense of Australian interior. Fair argument. Yeah, definitely. So I think we're interested in that, in our work, in saying actually what is you know, we are so privileged to live in this country and this city and so we should be celebrating it and we should be fostering, you know, this, this sort of nurturing of our environment and our, our, our communities. Back, it kind of comes back to that question of like, you know, how do you dwell mm. now with our current mm. cultural climate, our current climate climate? Um, well, there's been a huge shift in... Uh, for so long, I mean, our cities are just these little, you know, British, <laughs> little British towns. Mm. And I feel like it's only in the last sort of, yeah, 15, 20 years that actually people are starting to have this conversation about, oh, is this appropriate? Yeah, we're not this like homogenous sort of white Anglo-Saxon Protestant people where like mm. we're becoming more and more heterogeneous in uh, ethnic backgrounds and religious positions and or non-religious positions like why doesn't 
why do we all need to be in the same sort of Victorian terraces? <laughs> like, yeah, I'm a bit strange. of a sucker for a good Victorian terrace, though. Yeah, but... maybe try living in one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. On my various trips to Sydney and walking through Surrey Hills, I walk past them and I'm like, they're oh, very God, they're beautiful. Then they're like $6 million and I, <laughs> I crawl back into Perth, my Perth hole. <laughs> it's quite picturesque the way they it's roll so down the hills. But I know. <laughs> look, look, look. You know what? You just go into the back lane though and they're, you know, they're a mess. They're, yeah, they're yeah, just yeah, hodgepodge like, mess. It's like an episode <laughs> of The Wire back there. Yeah, you definitely. <laughs> they're very efficient though, like, you know, from a planning point of view, like they're very sort of efficient and, and they can offer great amenity but you know they're we're not the same people that we're not the same Australians that we were 120 years ago we're we're, we're evolving and different and I don't know some people want to hold on to that some people like us want to explore how that can be updated in our architecture yeah so that sort of point of view um use the word agitating how does a how does a small practice focus on that sort of area of work like how do you how do you dip your toe into the water of doing some agitating? Like, <laughs> how do you how do you how do you get going on that? I think you just keep pushing people. Oh yeah, you know, and it and that's where that I think that's we're getting better at it because people are trusting us more. <laughs> so the more trust you have, the more they will let you take a bit more of a risk. You know, but and it's not it's not, easy, it's not hard to to do that when every when a lot of people are just sort of copy pasting from. Pinterest or Instagram. Yeah, but it, like, you've got to have the pretty, right person to let you do it, true, I suppose. True, true, But like, you know, and it is easy to not pick oak flooring, <laughs> you know, like, like it is, it is easy to just look at what everyone else is doing and just go. I don't really want to do that. Is there like another option? <laughs> That's kind of like an easy way to agitate. Mm. There's a lot of people, yeah. Yeah, you, you don't have to do something that revolutionary. <laughs> you don't have to go very far. To agitate. <laughs> but before you know it, actually, people are suddenly, oh, wow, I've got something really different. Yeah. And, yeah, I think in some of our clients it almost sneaks up on them and then you, yeah, they sort of stand back and say, wow, you guys have actually done something really different. Do you think that sense of, like, the, the reality of that 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 renovation, you mentioned earlier the owner is not going to live there forever, they, there will be another own. There will be another renovation. Like there's, there's, there's some of these moves are kind of a bit ephemeral and temporary. Like, does that kind of give you a bit of a feeling of a bit more of a freedom to experiment and do something different, not kind of play it completely safe? You know, like coming back to what you're talking about with clients. I mean, is that kind of the? Mm. Or, no, I think we're still endeavouring to do something that actually is going to be like good longevity, enough. right? Yeah. And, yeah. yeah, but I think. So the, how do you the, sort of balance that? The main time we use that argument is when people start worrying about what the next person will think. Okay. You know, it's more that sort of like you put, you say, well, why don't we do it this way? And I say, oh, yeah, but how, you know, what about the, someone else will want to use it differently? And we say, well, don't worry about the someone else because if it gets to that point, the someone else may not want what you want. So, yeah, I think we're always trying to push them to do something that we can believe in and think, no, actually, this is the right move. But I think that is more that underlying fear that comes out in people. Yeah, all you can do is sort of put in as much effort as you can to make something as nice and beautiful as you can and hope that other people find value in that. Mm. That's kind of all you can really do. You don't mm. know who the next person's going to be. Finishing off kind of as we kind of come to the end of the episode, I'm just interested in you guys are started, started the practice in 2016 I know what that's like. I started working for myself in 2016. We're at that sort of like seven year mark. It's like an interesting time because you're starting to, I feel like kind of like you're really starting to get into your groove. We really yeah. kind of getting there, but you're also kind of thinking about like, what's, what's next? Like, do we, do we change? Do we just refine? Do we make some jump in some direction or whatever? I guess like, I'm just interested in like, are there any big things that are kind of questions for you guys at the moment? The big uncertainty is that you you sit down and you occasionally have chats about we like oh, do we do this like oh, should we do that like I'm just wondering if there's anything like that that's kind of on the cards at the moment. I think I think seven years definitely is that distillation stage. Yeah, we're definitely at the distillation stage at seven years. So because there's that nice sort of you got enough under your belt that actually yeah you're you're confident in yourself that you feel like okay now we can do what we want. There's definitely that aspect of it. I think. Yeah, the sort of ideas of, I think our discussion points are always around growth and, you know, how big is right for us to be. And I think actually we're almost at the point where we're pretty active in actually being a small office because mm. we realise that 
you know, we actually do enjoy doing a lot of our job. Um, there's a point where, yeah, just in order to service the work, there needs to be a certain amount of us. But, yeah, we're only three people at the moment. Mm. And actually I like that size. I like that we can all still, you know, the way we work in our office, we all work on the jobs. There's no, not really project architect. You know, mm. I, I suppose more and more as there's more clients there's starting to be a bit more of, you know, you're maybe a main contact, I'm a main contact. But fundamentally, yeah, we're very much still all one team working across all the jobs and I mm. like what that brings. Like I like that it's not I work better and quicker because I know it's not just me making the decisions, you know. Yes, everything's sort of constantly checked and mm. questioned and mm. reviewed. Yeah. There's no siloing of no. projects. Um, and I think I, I think it works better because of that. I think we're I think sort of looking back on it, we're we're kind of maybe building better. Like you know, we know a lot more now than we did when we started, and mm. you know, our construction knowledge and understanding of construction processes. Well, much I think better. too, as budgets grow, you get to work with better builders, which is actually yeah. nice because then you start to work, learn from but I, better people. But I think we're sort of building our ideas better. Mm. I think that. You know, very much like like architecture school. When you start out, you sort of have the big idea, and you kind of like work out how to build it later. But I think the construction side of things is feeding back into the very early sketch design stages, and so there's a strong, kind of a stronger idea, it's more of an agenda, a stronger yeah. materiality or a construction idea in 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 those um, early sketches that you know that you can pull off down the line, um, or you can sort of anticipate whether issue may be whether it's you know with council or with the engineering or something like that so you know what are we looking forward to i guess i'm kind of looking forward to building our ideas better or realizing mm. our ideas better like becoming more pure in mm. the way that our architecture is realized you know some some nice new big houses would be good too <laughs> a museum uh, <laughs> uh maybe like something. a just maybe a little one. maybe like one or two office towers, <laughs> but that's all. <laughs> no, I mean we're kind of happy at the moment with with the scale of things, and mm. and our clients are kind of they're great. It sort of depends who knocks on the door. Just kind of keep doing the best work that we can, see what comes along. Just because I always like to ask, are there any kind of final thoughts or concluders reflecting back on the a hundred plus topics we've covered today? <laughs> <laughs> are there any are there any final takeaways? Do you think it's nicer, this is sort of a question to Jemima, but do you think it's like nice to still have that in spirit of enthusiasm and practice so. now or have it at the same level as when we first started? It'd be kind of sad, wouldn't it, if you like... Oh, yeah, no, no, we haven't, we haven't peaked. <laughs> no. Uh, yeah, I think that's a good thing. Maybe like, you know, back to our earlier point about, you know, family and, and, and how the practice was established. I think that there's you know, like we don't really plan on retiring. And and so how do you keep practicing in the most sustainable way, right? Like how do you maintain your family relationships and, and you know, don't miss those moments of your, you know, with, with, with your children. And so that was sort of a conscious decision with how we set up the practice so that we can be there for that, so that we can still do architecture. And I think that setting the practice up, yeah, was about like a sustainable approach. Hmm. Yeah. So that we can do this for as long as we can. Yeah. The um, business will sort of grow with the kids. And, you know, we deliberately, like in terms of our cohort, we had children quite young and that, again, was quite deliberate. And I think came out of our time in Berlin where people had kids young, you know, it's like 25-year-olds with their babies and actually they're coming out of Sydney where the mothers are older. I actually kind of saw like, uh, actually this makes sense because particularly as an architect, you do get better at this job yeah. as you get more years under your belt. So I'm really looking forward to yeah, my I'm, kids being grown up and I'll just be hitting my stride. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess, yeah, yeah, yeah. Long story short, I'm really looking yeah. forward to like my 60s. Yeah, you know? I feel like we've made <laughs> yeah. our sort of hard years You guys have been young... hanging out with Glenn Merkitt too much, yeah. I feel. <laughs> and like these Pritzker Prize winner era people in their 80s doing amazing doing work. Doing their best work. Yeah, yeah. yeah you're like, that's yeah. what I'm really going to be. So cranking out the up. good stuff. Yeah, we set it up to be sustainable so that we can, you know, hit our stride. Yeah, no, I think at, we at realized in the future we realized, you know, the hardest sort of years are probably those initial years, 
with a business and actually they're the hardest years with your kids and your distractions. So let's get that all out of the way. And yeah, we're, we're finally, I mean, we're now, we've got two kids and they're about to both be in school and yeah, I feel like we've, we've made it and now we can focus. Exactly. (laughs) It's a long game. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm having a, a kid in January, game. so you're kind of freaking me out oh, right now. Ah, <laughs> Dave. No, look, it's the best but, thing uh, you'll do. I, I, oh, yeah, but I, might, I should have done it five years ago, baby. <laughs> Congratulations. No, I think um, kids are really good at giving you perspective. Yeah. I think it's been really healthy for us because we understand the value of time. It's made us quite efficient and I think it's actually been good for our practice. Time and priority. Must yeah, make you time so and much priorities. more productive, doesn't yeah. it? Having yeah. that constraint. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. Thank you so much, guys. This was an awesome episode. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Thanks. for having us. Thank you. That was my conversation with Jemima Retallick and Mitchell Thompson of Retallick Thompson. If you'd like to learn more about their studio, you can visit RetallicThompson.com or follow them on Instagram at RetallicThompson. That's all for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time.